Welcome to the pulpit ministry of Christ Community Church in South Florida, aiming to make, mature, and multiply disciples by preaching and teaching God's Word based on the sufficiency of Scripture. And now, let's join Pastor Bernie Diaz for the message. This Wednesday will be the 18th anniversary of the 9-11 terrorist attacks on our country. And it brought in mind a somewhat tongue-in-cheek story I came across a few years ago that was written by someone after 9-11 had occurred as it relates to the church, and I thought it was pretty good. It goes like this, quote, The latest news reports are that five terrorist cell groups have been operating in many of our churches. They have been identified, not as Osama bin Laden, but as been sleeping, been arguing, been fighting, been complaining, and been missing. And their leader is Lucifer, been working. He's been training these groups to destroy the body of Christ, the church. The plan is to come into the church disguised as Christians and to work within the church to discourage, disrupt, and destroy. However, there have been reports of a sixth group, a tiny little cell known by the name Bin Praying, which is actually the effective way to counter the terrorism force in the church. Unlike other terrorist cells, the Bin Praying team does not blend in with whoever and whatever comes along. Bin Praying does whatever is needed to uplift and encourage the body of Christ, the church. And we have noticed that the Bin Praying cell group has different characteristics than these other groups. They have been watching, been waiting, been fasting, and been longing for their master, Jesus Christ, to return. Amen. I like that because I want that to be our church. I want our church to look like that. That those characteristics of those somewhat mythical groups, fictional groups, would be ours. We want to be a church that looks like the love of God is present in this place and when we're together, and that we're making a difference for the community and for the kingdom. We're being a lighthouse. And so the text in this passage that draws us to this, really, I want you to get a handle on this, really begins in verse 9 and concludes all the way through verse 21 at the end of the chapter. It's one whole section of thought that God has given us through the Apostle Paul. And it looks like, as you heard it read this morning, it might have looked like to you a laundry list of to-dos, like a to-do list for Christians. And it is sort of. Interestingly enough, you should know by now, Paul has told us throughout this letter and at the beginning of the chapter that to-dos really come from who you are. Because he said over the first 11 chapters, remember, we don't come to Christ by works of the law. We come to Christ by faith in Christ alone, right? We're more about relationship than traditional religion right now. We're free to live now as the new born-again creatures God created us to be. So have-tos, what do we say? Have-tos become get-tos, become want-tos, all right? So what we really are given here is a short list of these short, direct, to-the-point admonitions from Paul, nearly two dozen ways in this chapter, of what Christians should look like what we should look like. It's displaying the marks of a real born-again disciple. You might call it something like the Christian Life 101. That's what this might be looking like. And I believe, intended or not, this is Paul's Sermon on the Mount. I believe he's got Jesus in mind, the Sermon on the Mount, because he's talking about the closest thing to moral law there is for a Christian. From chapters 12 to 15, it's all about what the Christian life should look like, and he even refers to the Ten Commandments and how they fit in with the gospel. And in no particular logical order, he's got like three categories here we're going to look like, what we should look like, in a, almost two dozen different ways, 11 alone in this text. Number one, you're going to look like, how should we live personally? What should we look like personally in our attitudes and actions day to day? We call that in the message, living worship, doing the will of God, verses one and two. The next thing is, how do we live in community? Which is what we're talking about here. Local church, life in the body. We talked about the grace gifts for the body, and now what love looks like in the body, and that's from verse 3 all the way to verse 13. And then thirdly, we're going to look at next time, how do we live in the world? Peacemaking, conflict resolution, even under persecution. 
verses 14 to 21. But what does love look like in the body here? I think you're going to love, you're going to learn some interesting things today. You're going to be reminded of some interesting things. First thing is there's such a thing as godly love and godly hate. And he expects that from us. That's in verses 9 and 10. Then the rest of the text, you're going to see love and godly service and discipline. So we're going to start off, firstly, with godly love, godly hate, verses 9 and 10. Look at verse 9 again. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Three commands, three characteristics of what true Christians are. Just basically, love genuinely, hate what's evil, stick close to what's good. And if you notice there, this kind of reads like the fruit of the Spirit, which all begins with love. Love is the single greatest virtue for Christians. It's what distinguishes us from the rest of the world, what should. It is the key to success in the Christian life. Make no mistake about that. In fact, 1 John 4 says, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. And if we love one another, God abides or remains, stays in you. So in other words, your love for people is actually going to prove whether or not you're one of God's people, one of his children. And you're going to see this in two different ways. Love is described in two different ways here. And now we have to get a little bit deep here. This is why it's so important to know the original languages of the Bible. In the New Testament, that's primarily Greek. It says here, let love be genuine. What kind of love is that? You see, in English, we only have one word for love, but the Greeks had four. And they each have a different nuanced meaning. Agape, philos, eros, and storgai. Okay? This is agape. This is the love of God, John 3.16 love. We are to have a genuine love that serves other people. It's selfless. It's not selfish. God loves us sacrificially and unconditionally. Therefore, so should we. It actually does something for somebody else, this kind of love. It's a verb. It's an action word. Love does things. Now, what does it do? What does that look like? Well, think of loving your neighbor. Think about the Good Samaritan. That's an excellent picture of that. Love is this. This agape love meets needs. Let me repeat that. Agape love meets needs. And that's echoed throughout the chapter. And it develops into a word now that has a double meaning, as a positive and a negative. Because the positive part is we're supposed to love in a genuine way. That means sincere, a real way with a pure heart. First Peter 1 calls it a sincere brotherly love, okay? But then there's a negative way to think about it because that word also has the idea in the Greek without hypocrisy. The word actually combines two Greek words for love. Philo, philo, the prefix, that's where we get the word Philadelphia from, the city of brotherly love. So that means we're to love in a genuine way that is affectionate and that is like a family and good friends. It's a tender, warm love. But then the word is philostorgai, so it, it combines the two Greek words. This is the only time this happens in the New Testament. And the other Greek word has the idea of the affectionate love that a parent has for children and children for parents. And that's how we're to love each other. Very, very interesting. What's, what's without hypocrisy? If love is genuine, it has to be without hypocrisy, Paul's saying. It's actually being two-faced with your love. What's a good picture of that? It's actually a bad picture. Judas, right? You remember reading in our Bible reading plan recently, the Gospel of Mark, and in the Garden of Gethsemane, Judas actually comes to Jesus in affection, kisses him on the cheek, at the same time as a traitor betraying him. That's hypocritical love. You don't want to love like that. How else is hypocritical? We're going to get real. Three ways I thought of. Number one, when it's lazy. Hypocritical love can be lazy. It talks love, but doesn't do love. Agape or brotherly love. For instance, 1 John. 1 John I, I thought of in chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, 
How does God's love abide in him? Ouch. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is something I've communicated to my kids since they were little growing up is it's really warm and nice when you tell me you love me, but I want you to show me that you love me. That's what he's talking about here. Second is when it double speaks. Hypocrisy can show up in love when it double speaks. Double speaks comes out in two different ways, and I want you to see how they come out from the letter of Ephesians, which we're now in, in our BRP. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25 says, Therefore, having putting away, having put away falsehood, lying, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. This is a message for the church, remember. Colossians 3 says the same way. This is what I mean. Here's the first way double speaking comes out, okay? When you speak well of someone to their face, and then you criticize or talk badly about that person to yourself or to someone else later behind their back, that's double-faced hypocrisy. That's not love. That's not genuine love. That's one way. It's classic hypocritical love. Because we're to build each other up with our speech, not tear each other down, right? In fact, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger, clamor, slander be put away from you along with all malice. And in verse 29, let no corrupting talk out, come out of your mouths, but only that which is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may, what, give grace to those who hear. And we've seen that our church last year, like others have been, was victimized by a schism. That's a big word in church for a disunity, a division that was stirred up by some people, according to this text, for whatever reason, lost their love for the church. Lost their love, I think, honestly, beginning with me as their pastor. And you can say it became a love of hypocrisy because we saw it manifested in the double speak I just mentioned that Paul warns against. We have to guard ourselves against that. As the Lord knows, that undermines the unity that the local church should have. And the second way we double speak is then the other extreme. When we hold back from telling our brother and sister in Christ just what they need to hear to their face, even tough truth that's going to help them in their walk with Christ. That's hypocritical love. Because think about it. How can you say you love someone, another member in the church, maybe you know them pretty well, and you know you've seen they're actively living in sin, might be pornography, substance abuse, irresponsibility, and then you don't even approach them even lovingly confront that family member. Let me ask you, is that biblical love? That's rhetorical because the Bible would say no. And this applies outside of the church too. Amongst your good friends and your blood relatives, can you say you love them and not approach them when their life is a train wreck? That kind of love, according to the Apostle Paul, which means according to God, is not genuine. It's hypocritical because, listen, true love speaks the truth in love. True love speaks the truth in love. It doesn't back away from hard and necessary truth. But it must be done gently, carefully. That's in love. But you can be so careful, you don't want to cause offense, which I understand, that you then withhold the gospel or truth from those that need it most. In the days of our sexual revolution, this is huge. There are some of you that may have or know friends, family members that are actively homosexual or struggling with transgender issues, and as to not cause them offense, you don't say anything to them. That's not speaking the truth in love. You have to prayerfully find a way to speak Christ and salvation into their life because that's what they need the most, and love meets needs. Third way I thought of love being hypocritical, not genuine, is in judgment. Sermon on the Mount, right? Matthew 7. You have people that may mean well, and they're really working on taking that little speck of sin out of somebody's eye when they got a big old mama log in their eye. That's hypocritical judging. You can judge and discern and discriminate, 
but you want to be a godly fruit inspector, not a sinful sin sniffer. So Paul starts off with agape love. Now, we're going to talk about brotherly love in a second, but next, Paul tells us in verse 9, we have to hate what God hates, abhor evil, love what God loves. That's elsewhere in the Bible, Psalm 97.10. Oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. Why? Because we're to be as holy as God is holy, right? Holiness hates evil by definition. Holiness cannot coexist, should not tolerate or coexist with evil. And guess what? Love cannot coexist with evil. In fact, Paul put it well in 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 and 22. He said, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. So that text, this concept of biblical hate is really synonymous with the idea of discernment. Discernment is being able to discriminate or distinguish that which is good between that which is evil. Paul put it, test everything, right? Now, that Greek word for abhor here in English, you don't hear that word used in English too often anymore. It's stronger than the word hate. From the original language in Greek, it really has the idea, I detest that. It's a strong hate. In fact, it literally means to have a horror of something. And God's word goes even deeper with that idea than this, when if you were to turn to Proverbs chapter 6, you might remember this familiar passage, Proverbs 6, 16 to 19. The Bible says God hates six things, even seven. You want to know what they are? Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, that's murder, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and listen to this, what comes, wrapping it up, and one who sows discord among brothers. God hates that. And hates, with a holy hate, unredeemed people who do that. That's true. And it said in verse 16, these things are not only hateful to God, they're an abomination. When's the last time you heard that word? That's an interesting word. That's uber hatred. An abomination from the Hebrew is something, this is literally true, that is so wicked and evil as to be disgusting to God. Literally makes him sick. And following those principles, I believe God hates things like abortion, murder. I believe God hates this sexual revolution we're in. I believe God hates a lot of what we see in this culture. I believe God also hates the violence in this world and the way we treat one another. The Word of God teaches us even what to hate. Psalm 19, 104. This is where you go to find out what God should hate. Through your precepts, precepts is another word for commands, law, the word, I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Listen, you need to know this distinction. I don't want you hating people. That's not what God's about. The Old Testament, we see that God hates the wicked. He actually does, but his hate is perfect and it's controlled because he is. Ours isn't. We struggle with our flesh, right? So we have to be careful with this admonition. For instance, you cannot hate the mission field you're serving. The mission field is lost people, folks. You can't hate people that you're going to try to minister to and witness to. You hate what they do. Don't hate them. You get a good picture of that in Revelation 2 in the letters to the churches. The Lord commended the Ephesian church for hating the works of the Nicolaitans which he said he also hated. He didn't say go and hate the Nicolaitans, hate their works. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. That means if you fear the Lord, you're a Christian, you just automatically you're supposed to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. All right? So it is very hard to witness and give your testimony to people you hate. You've got to be prepared in your heart through prayer not to do that. In contrast, Paul in 1 Thessalonians in this text then exhorts us to hold fast, cling to. It literally had it in a metaphor, the idea of being glued to something. Glued to what? 
be glued to what's good. Now, let me ask you, what is good? Somebody, what's good? Jesus is good. I like that. What else? You know, it might be easy to figure out what good is by the opposite of it, which is evil and wickedness. You could do that. But I think a simpler way is this. Hang your heart and your mind to that which is righteous, God-glorifying, and Christ-exalting, which goes to what Jesus said. In fact, Colossians 3 would remind us, set your mind on things above, not on the earth. Or Philippians 4, remember that great list? Tells us to think about these things. What is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent. He says, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That's how you cling to what is good. Where are you going to find these things, by the way? You know, in a word, for starters, it's in the fellowship of the church. Then you have to look for things in the world that by God's common grace are good. Things that have good qualities to them, and they reflect God's grace. I think it's personally hard to cling to what's good and abhor or hate evil if most or a good chunk of what you focus your attention on and your eyes in this culture are things that glorify evil and ignore the good. Does that make sense? I mean, because now I'm getting in your living room and your bedroom here. Think about that. What are you clinging to? What are you focusing on? I'm just saying, I don't write the mail, I just deliver it. It's Paul. Paul's saying, what do you cling to? Back to love, verse 10. Let's go back to our text. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. This is just a call to love the church. Brotherly love. That's what loving the church is. You have to love the church, people, as imperfect as it is. It's a spiritual hospital. Sick people are in it, okay? You have to love the church. Why? Because Jesus loved the church. Love what God loves. Hate what God hates. I'm very skeptical of people that say they're Christians and hate the church. Those things don't go together. They don't jive. The main reason that we call each other so, so often in this church brother or sister is because that's what we are in Christ. We share the same father. Church family. We share the same faith, same hope, same worship together as family. And again, this is the compound word I told you about, philo storge. It is a deep, affectionate love. You know, the Apostle Peter had his own list of Christian virtues in his second letter. One of them was brotherly affection with love. You know what that kind of love is like? A young girl once said, love is when you go out to eat and give somebody most of your French fries without making them give you any of theirs. Maybe. Now, you might say, okay, what do you mean by affection? I'm just supposed to be affectionate. I'm not affectionate, Pastor. I don't feel that way, man. Well, you need to work on that. You need to think about if you want to obey and glorify the Lord, get out of your comfort zone a little bit. Think about glorifying the Lord by coming over and giving the nice little side hug, okay? You can do that. Do that. A nice, firm, non-bone-breaking handshake. That'll do. If you're bold enough, especially if you're Hispanic, you can do the Hispanic holy kiss. Yeah. You're chucking and jiving there. Nothing wrong with that. I'm not mandating that. But what the Apostle Paul is saying is that we should be lovingly, appropriately affectionate with one another because we're family. We're brothers and sisters. And isn't that true? That's what generally what families do, should do. So this kind of love is essential if you're going to have diversity and unity coincide in the same church. It has to be a priority for this if we're going to obey this command properly. And by the way, this is a command. It's not a suggestion. And the only way, you say, well, wait a second. I'm commanded to be affectionate? Yes. How? You better be filled with the Spirit. Be in the Word. Pray. And that'll come. And it's more than socializing. Okay? Church is a great place to get to know someone. That's true. You can share your hobbies or interests. You talk about the latest football games or movies, music. You share your family news, health concerns, prayer requests. You might get some lunch, cup of coffee together. That's all good. 
friendly pat on the back. We all need that. We're social beings. We were created for relationship. All that's good. But New Testament fellowship is deeper than that. You know that our community is koinonia. It is a deep, affectionate community that has the most important things in common. That's what that word means. That's what that concept is. So it goes beyond just when we meet together on Sunday mornings like today or Tuesday nights. It takes place when you consider how to lift up and share burdens and encourage one another, right? And by the way, another reason why this is so important, this brotherly love, it is a display of love to the body and outside the body to the world. Do you know the world, the world, the unredeemed world doesn't really know what love looks like in God's intention. You know, agape love is a foreign concept in secular circles. You mean I'm supposed to give up everything, me, for others? Yes. Just like God gave us his best with Jesus on the cross. Yeah. We love in ways that the world does not love. This world we're in, this culture is all caught up in romance. Romance is based on one biblical word for love, eros. You know how many times you find eros in the New Testament? Zip. Not once. Why? Because God's not concerned with that. I'm not saying you don't have romance in your marriage, and et cetera, and that you should. But in terms of describing the most meaningful love in the Bible, God ain't concerned about eros. Thorgai, philos, and agape. Love of brother, friend, church member. That's what God's about when it comes to love. And then you move on. And love does something else. It honors. It outdoes one another in honor. A good way to understand that word, when you talk about honor, you're respecting someone. And we're going to develop this in chapter 13 when we talk about our relationship to government, how we should submit to the governing authorities in our lives. We honor, we respect them, ascribing value there. But what this is talking about is respecting and praising someone else in the church going out of your way to do that. And it's in the middle voice here in the Greek, which means we initiate the action. We don't wait for someone to honor us. We should be looking to honor others in word and in deed. We don't wait for other people to make the first move, all right? Christ followers, we take the lead supernaturally in wanting to love others with respect, with honor. In other words, summarizing that word, just others come first. That's the idea. By the way, talking about others, I counted, there are over 51 and others in the New Testament that we're to do. And in our series last year on caring for one another, we touched on some of these because we admitted publicly in our solemn assembly we needed to improve in that area. Praise the Lord. I see we have greatly. I see that. In fact, this church is known for that in circles here in this community. But I just want to give you a flavor. This is such a big deal, doing to one another's, much to your delight. I'm not going to quote the 50 verses. But let me just give you from this letter, this section, some. If you look at the beginning of verse 16, it says, live in harmony with one another. We'll dissect that a bit more next time. If you go to chapter 13, verse 8, it says this, Oh, no one anything except to love each other right? Chapter 14, verse 13, first clause, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, okay? It's phrased that way. Chapter 15, verse 7, look at that. The first clause, therefore, welcome one another. Now we're getting to talk about hospitality there. Verse 14, in the middle there, that we should with all knowledge be able to instruct or teach one another. And then finally, chapter 16, the last chapter of this letter, verse 16 at the very beginning of it. Here it is, my favorite. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Did y'all do that this morning? Listen, that part of it is culturalized, okay? That is contextualized culturally. There's not a mandate that you're like not Christian if you don't give somebody a kiss on the cheek. What I am saying, the emphasis, the principle behind a cultural context is the principle, the general truth, which is be affectionate. For you, that might be a nice warm handshake. Might be a side hug. I don't know. You figure it out. We're not, we're not legalists. 
Second point, lastly, and we're done. Let's talk about godly service and discipline. What does love look like there in verses 11 to 13? Look at verse 11. Do not be slothful or lazy, sluggish in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Very interesting word there, fervent in spirit. Not being slothful in zeal. It has the idea as a metaphor of boiling over, like boiling water. It's eager. It means eager to be in the Spirit and love and serve in the Spirit. When's the last time you were boiling over to serve somebody? You know when this comes up a lot? When you talk to a new believer or you observe a new believer and you say, wow, she's on fire for Christ. That's what it means to be fervent in spirit. But what's interesting is it's not talking about new believers. This is talking about for all believers or to be this way. Like in Acts 18, Apollo was. Apollos was eager and hungry to share Christ. We just had a guy like that, and Apollos move on from our church to do work in ministry in North Carolina, right? Our brother and friend, he manifested this verse. He was so energetic and enthusiastic each and every week talking to me. What can I do? What do you think of this? This has been done. What needs to be done? It should be everybody. It just stuck out in him. I think he was particularly gifted in that area. That means eager, what we're talking about here is being eager to share in both the blessings and the burdens of our brothers and sisters to do that. Many of you do that by serving the church with your spiritual gifts like we talked about when we were here last time. Paul's saying we shouldn't be waiting on anybody here. We shouldn't be nagging you to serve others in this church. The Christian life is marked out by a passion to serve others in the church. That's what these words mean. That's what the Christian life is marked out by. And this is just really, again, an overflow of your love for the Lord and the church, which we talked about in verses 9 and 10, right? How do you serve the Lord? That's an interesting command there. And then interesting expectation, serve the Lord at the end of verse 11. Paul doesn't use the regular word for serving in ministry, which is the root word where we get deacon from. It's the root word of a Greek word that gives us the idea of a slave. We are to serve the Lord like a slave. And what do slaves do? What have slaves traditionally done in an appropriate setting? They obey their master. They dutifully obey the commands of a master. That's what Paul's telling us. And it's in a present tense, so it should be habitual practice, a lifestyle of obeying God. That's how we serve God. You can see it more practically this way. If you turn over to Acts chapter 20, Paul did this. In Acts chapter 20, you'll see how he did it, and you'll see how it applies to us. Acts 20, verse 19. And it begins, Paul, Luke is talking about Paul serving the Lord with all humility, with tears and trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. How did he serve the Lord? He sacrificed himself to disciple others that would become disciple makers. Paul was very serious about this mission that we include as our own in our church, which is the making, maturing, and multiplying of disciples. That's how Paul served the church. Again, these are commands not suggestions. And the next one is encouraging to us, actually, as a reminder. Look at verse 12. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Three exhortations really closely related to one another in both the style and the content. Paul's done this before in Romans 8, putting these things together. What really sticks out to me, if you just heard that, the first clause there is like Philippians 4. Rejoice in hope, and then I say rejoice. You're like, what? It's a command to be happy? Yes. Not in the worldly sense of the word happy. Turning cartwheels because something good just happened in your life. That's not it at all. You have to understand this command by understanding the word and the concept. What he's communicating, the root word for rejoice there is the root is the word we get grace from. It's really being, it's a verb here. It's being glad and being soul satisfied by God's grace that should produce an inner joy in you regardless of circumstances. 
We've talked about this before. Soul satisfaction is Christian joy. And that's going to happen regardless of tribulations and persecution in your life. Remember, suffering, hope, and prayer, which is here, always go together in the New Testament. It's always joined. And it should be. Remember what our hope is? You know what Christian hope is? It's living day to day in the great expectation of the second coming of Christ. It's an expectation that you know is going to happen. It's guaranteed, and you can't wait for it. That's what it is. It's not like most people. The world, when they use the word hope, I hope I get a new car. I hope I get a better job. I hope, I hope, I hope, which really means I wish, I wish, I wish. We don't wish that way. Our hope is the expectation of a reality that hasn't quite come yet, but it's coming. I can't wait for Christ to come back. He's going to right all wrongs. He's going to take me home. My future is bright. It's secure. Lord, come. I can't wait. That's Christian hope. You have to live in that hope in the midst of pain, folks. This is what we offer to the world. This is how you get through Category 5 storms in the Bahamas. If you don't have hope, I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you pull it off. You've got to understand you're part of a bigger plan in a bigger relationship where things that are wrong are made right. And you are a child of the king. You've got to have that. That's why John Stott said this, Quote, those who are true believers should be the most positive people in the world. We cannot, this is his words, mooch around the place with a drooping hangdog expression. We cannot drag our way through life groaning and moaning. We cannot always be looking on the dark side of everything as negative people do and prophets of doom. No, we exult in God. He's everything. He's the shelter in the storm, Isaiah says. So this is a call for us to be patient in tribulation. Patient means to endure, to persevere under hardships. It was used as a metaphor in Greek when you would try to hold up a heavy weight or you were under pressure. Really what we talk about is suffering well. We talked about that in our prayer meeting this morning, that people in the wake of this storm are going to suffer well. What does it mean to suffer well? What does that look like? Ever hear the story of Rack Shack and Benny? That's the VeggieTales version. That's Daniel's three friends, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, Daniel 3. They're not going to worship the image of Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar says, well, we have a law on that now. So if you don't, you're going in the fiery furnace. You know that, right? This is their reaction in verse 16, the three of them. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so... Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Here's the key, verse 18. But if not, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship that golden image you have set up. I love that, because they are not presuming on God's grace. They are acknowledging God is the only one that can get us out of this, and maybe his will, maybe his will of decree, and his secret providential will is not to deliver us. And we're good with that. Why? Because we got a good God. Kill us. Burn us. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. It's a promotion, baby. Bring it on. That's Christian hope. You see how that works? That's what Christian hope looks like. Christian hope is seen every day in a hospital when a Christian is terminal on a deathbed and is saying, take me home, Lord, I'm ready. And they're not losing it, and they're not having a meltdown. And the Christian family isn't having a meltdown. This is why when we have memorial services for evangelical born-again Christians, it's a celebration. It's a going home. Why? Because they, the family, have hope. Right? Loss of anything. We cover it in hope and in prayer. Constantly devoted to prayer. That's what it means there, that word for prayer. Prayer is the lifeline for us people. It's like breathing. Having the Lord's ear, Psalm 86. 
If you're dealing with all kinds of trials and sorts of tribulation, you're, pers you're persevering in them, it's because you're hoping you got that deep down soul satisfaction and you're constantly in prayer. And then finally, we have verse 13 in our text. And then we're done. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. That's what Paul is talking about, looking like the love of God in the body. Contribute, he says. Contribute to the needs. That root word is the word we get for koinonia, community. Remember in Acts 2, Acts 4, the church has just started. People had needs and the members sold of whatever they had to meet those needs of their church family in Jerusalem. That's what this word is in action, contribute. In fact, I'm going to give you a, a real serious follow-up in James chapter 2, verse 15. You want to see faith in action? How do I know I'm a Christian? Here's another way. James 2.15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the, need, the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, it, if it does not have works, is dead. Wow. That, that really has bothered me through the years. You know, you give somebody a need that they have, and they tell you, a brother or sister in Christ, maybe from another church, wherever, I really need this, and you say, oh, I'll pray about that. Hope that works out well. That's James 2.15. Christians don't do that. We got to do better than that. Christians have to, let me pray for you, and let's talk about how I can help meet your need. Agape love, love meets need. Let me see who we can get, coordinate. Let's see what we can do to meet your need. Both and. Pray and do. That's consistent Christian love, which is manifest in this word hospitality. That's a big one today. That was, back then, that was an indispensable expression of love. Because contributing to needs and hospitality are really bookends. They connect. You think of generosity for the needy, hospitality for visitors. In the New Testament, this was essential. Okay, travel was dangerous. No holiday inns around. Whatever inns there were were scarce. They were expensive. So what early believers often did was they opened up their homes to travelers, even strangers. In fact, the word hospitality, the root of it, is love of stranger. It was virtual necessity then. The main idea is this out of that, because we're going to contextualize a little bit here. Christians should always be ready, willing, and able, eager to help people, beginning with your church family. And it goes without saying... Loving and serving one another this way, listen, I know is not easy. We live in very harried, stressful lives. We're on the run. This kind of love of the body can be inconvenient, especially in the world we live in today, because it takes sacrifice, effort, and guess what? A commitment to fellowship. That's what we call our membership here in this church, commitment to fellowship. God, and it's to be fervent. Verse 11, back 1 Peter 4, 9, he put it this way, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Oh, really? You got that need, huh? No, I can't make it. Got to iron my socks. Got to be there. Our midweek discipleship process, like some other churches, revolves around small community groups and homes, folks. We need and we thrive on hospitality in this church. I don't even think we'd do that differently if we had a church building that we own because of the benefits of discipleship in homes. But today we're in a, you know, in a different cultural context. We have been for some time. I get that. We don't have the same need or opportunities to house missionaries, you know, Third John, like Lydia did for Paul and Silas in the book of Acts. And I know, listen, we're hesitant to take in strangers in our homes for good reason, Right? Safety, security, I'm not talking about that. I get that. And I also get the fact not everyone is a home big enough, maybe, to host a shepherd group, although there's nothing wrong with being a little crowded. Or some of you are not available Tuesday night, and I get that too, but everybody can do something. And let me clarify this. Hospitality is not entertainment. 
You know, entertaining is when you have somebody over and you make your place look like a palace and you have a four-course dinner and everything looks really nice. You can smell the Lysol in the air or whatever candle you like to burn. I get it. That's not what we're talking about here with hospitality, okay? We're talking about just opening the doors of a home, snacks or potluck, it's casual, it's comfy. We've had in our family group, we've had dozens of people in, in our home and, and, and others of you have where the kids sit on the floor. They can do that, they're young, they can hack it. Ain't nothing wrong with that. We're just there to fellowship around God's word, okay? You can see that really summarized in one principle by one word. It's really, hospitality is charity. Charity. It's practical deeds done for others, the one and others. For instance, we had a brother in our church that quite possibly needed hurricane shutters put up last week. And I sent out feelers to some of our brothers in the church, and I had a number of you volunteer. That's hospitality. It's not always in the vein of opening your home. It's meeting needs sacrificing time and effort in a commitment to fellowship to help a brother or sister in the church. If you're praying for someone who's sick from our church, you can take time to visit them. Yeah, pray for them at home, but you know what? You can visit them at the hospital if that's appropriate and okay, or in their home. That's hospitality. Hospitality is welcoming someone. It's as easy, as basic as this. Sitting next to someone who's a guest, a visitor of our church service today, greeting them with a smile during the greeting and making them feel at home. That's hospitality. It's got nothing to do with opening your house in that context. What does it say about us if we don't do that? Well, go to Matthew 25 where our final stop in Scripture is. And the Lord Jesus has been talking about the judgment to come. He's been talking about the end times. And this is a text that's often quoted in social justice circles, but the context is not really about social justice per se, as much as it is in defining, like James 2, who's in the faith and who's not by their hospitality or lack thereof and what's the consequence. Matthew 25, verse 35, Jesus says, For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. He's talking about there are people that have done that. They are the sheep in the flock. But the flock has visible and invisible parts. They're not only sheep, but there's goats. There's wheat, and there's weeds. So now he talks about the people that wouldn't be as hospitable. Go further down in that chapter, verse 43. He told those people, I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not clothe me, sick in prison and you did not answer, you did not visit me. Because they had just, then they, they even told them, they said, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick? And then he will answer them, verse 45, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of me, of these, you did not do it to me. You could say, did not do it for me. Verse 46, the rubber hits the road. And these, the ones that were inhospitable, unloving, and these will go away into internal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Pretty much. It's a good period on the whole message, Romans 12, 9 to 13, in terms of what love looks like in the body. So I just have a question. How much do you really love this church? I've been told by many people that you love this church, and you tell other people that. I'm grateful for that. That's wonderful. And you might tell others that you do, and you mean that. But I just, what each of us has to do is examine ourselves today, go home and ask us, do we look like that love in this church? How are we doing with Romans 12, 9 to 13? By the way, that comes from the heart. All of this comes from the heart. That's what God's looking for. Not for you to have to do a bunch of do's and don'ts. If this is real hard for you to do, if Romans 12, 9 to 13 is hard for you to do, then you've got a different issue. It's a hard issue. 
You need to get alone with Jesus. Have some real serious, quiet time with Jesus. Because if you're right with Jesus, 9 to 13 is just going to happen. It's going to overflow. It's going to be abundant. You're going to be, who needs help? Where do I serve? Who do I pray for? What do I do? What do you need done? Who needs ministry? That's Romans 12, 9 to 13. It just overflows. And we see that from time to time. But Paul's giving us a list of reminders because the church needs to manifest it more and more consistently and by more of us. And that'll show up in how you show hospitality, holding on to what is good, hating evil, your loving service to the body, and above all, your love for one another. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word, for the Spirit's teaching. Lord God, and thank you for grace. And for those that don't feel that they're yet connected to this fellowship or any other fellowship, they don't feel connected to you, it's because they may not be yet in Christ. And they may be looking at eternal justice and condemnation. I pray that if someone's like this in this room today or more, or those listening later, whether it be a podcast or on the internet, Lord, that they would turn to you. That by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would cause them to be born again so that they would turn to you and trust in Jesus alone to forgive them for their sins. That they would have a new life and be able to be patient, enduring in tribulation and persecution that is sure to come because they have the hope of Christ. May that happen today, Lord. And may someone that wishes to express that desire to know Christ as Lord and Savior would do it soon, Lord. In Jesus' name, we prayed. Amen. Christ Community Church is a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, and Bible-centered body of believers who love God and love people by making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information on our ministry, please visit our website at www.christcomchurch.org. That's christcomchurch.org. 